Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. Have you ever tasted edible bird's nest? It's a Chinese delicacy, often enjoyed in a light, brothy soup. And people will pay big money for the right kind of bird's nests. Looking it up online, I found hits running everywhere from $40 for a trio of nests to nearly $600 for an 8-ounce box. They're actually one of the most expensive animal products consumed by humans. Up there with Kobe beef, white truffles, and some tantalizing elixir called elvish honey. But for Emily Gann and her father, Howard, edible bird's nests are about much more than their price tag. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. It's Father's Day, and we've got two stories about kids who are all grown up trying to connect with their dads. Coming up, for years, Adriel Smiley and his dad, Alistair, rarely saw eye to eye. I don't want to say beef all the way, but um, growing up, it definitely wasn't always crispy. Until that all changed last year. But first, Emily Gann with a story about legacy and love and thousands of tiny birds. Where my father is from, a small village in Malaysia, the cries of birds fill the air. More specifically, the cries of swiftlets. The swiftlet is a small bird, so small its nest fits in the palm of a human hand. They build their tiny nests from their salivary glands, and this secretion has surprising value in the human world. We eat what they spit out. It's 2012, and my father and I are visiting family in Malaysia. We're inside a giant birdhouse, a three-story, windowless, concrete building with a large hole in the roof. It's designed to mimic a cave, the natural habitat of the swiftlet. These bird cries that fill the air are coming from speakers. Swiftlets cannot be held captive, so the recorded sounds reverberate through the building like an invisible population of birds calling for the real swiftlets to come. As my dad explains, they fly in to see if their friends are there. And once they're inside, if they like what they see, they'll make it their home. To profit off these birds, a farmer would ideally harvest every four months, after the young have learned to fly. They harvest during the day, when the birds are out hunting for food. When the birds return to find their nests gone, they simply build a new one, and the cycle repeats itself. This is why we're here. My father wants to get into the edible bird nest business. The birdhouse we're visiting belongs to a local man named Ulu, who my family calls the king of the swiftlets. Thousands of real swiftlets have claimed this space as their home. There are row upon row of empty nests, ready to be scraped off the walls. My dad jokes that Ulu's birds have made him a multi-billionaire. He's exaggerating, but a single kilogram of bird nests can sell for as much as five or six thousand dollars. 
The saliva nests may look like discarded balls of white thread, but they are delicate little crescent-shaped treasures. When my dad speaks of the birds, he speaks of the future, his hopes, his dreams, and the rest of our lives. He has started building a birdhouse on some land belonging to my grandfather, nestled within their kampung, their hometown. He wants to attract his own swiftlets, to provide for me and my sisters, and ensure our family's legacy. Almost hundred years. It's to your grandchildren, grand-grandchildren. He says that every month we'll be able to harvest a hundred kilograms. Heritage. And that then we can relax. Then we'll be very happy. <laughs> my uncle tells us my dad will have lots of birds by next spring. <laughs> we head back home to Canada to wait, trading in the tropical heat for the cold of winter. My parents still live in my childhood home on the island of Montreal. There was a time when my sisters and I filled the rooms of the house. Now my dad fills the space with plants, hundreds of them, rooms full of them. He says watering them all takes a full hour. At least sometimes a whole day standing on that. From outside, the house windows look taken over by long spindly vines, like tentacles reaching for the light. I can't help but think that the swiftlets are more than my dad's wish to provide for me and my sisters. They're his way of reaching towards the light of his homeland. My father comes from a family of Chinese-Malaysian farmers, but because he had a heart defect as a kid, he went to school instead of working in the fields with his brothers. His studies eventually brought him to Canada, where he met my mother, the daughter of a merchant from Taipei. My dad is the only one of his six siblings who left Malaysia. He spent almost two decades sending money back home to his family, but during the 90s, Malaysia's economy boomed, and my dad's help from abroad was no longer needed. Now, approaching 70, it feels too late for him to fully return home. But he seems to want to make sure my sisters and I will have roots there when he's gone. You're right to have that things in Malaysia, okay? He assures me. Daddy's still here. For now, he remains our link. Spring comes and goes, and we're back in Malaysia again. The birdhouse is finished, but it's empty. The speakers are on, but no birds have come. We huddle around an outdoor sink with my cousin's wife, Wainlan, who shows me how to clean some nests that my uncle has harvested from his own already operational swiftlet farm. It's a time-consuming process because the nests are filthy. You have to soak the nests to soften them, she explains, so the feathers and eggshells and bird droppings can be picked out. After dinner, the bird nest is served as a soupy dessert. It feels like overcooked gelatinous vermicelli on my tongue. The nests have no real flavor. They taste like whatever you add to them. So I ask my dad what all the fuss is about. Why eat their spit? What's the point? They like it because this is very expensive. 
is the label cleaning the small small dose of feather. He explains that the time it takes to prepare is the point. That they've always been very exclusive. The king, they give their dish unto the king. Not the ordinary people can touch these things. In the Ming Dynasty, when a Chinese admiral found himself and his sailors shipwrecked on an island in the South China Sea, they were left with nothing to eat except birds' nests they found clinging to cave walls. Legend has it that within days after eating these nests, the nearly starving seafarers were nourished back to health. Convinced that these nests held great medicinal powers, they sailed back to China with a bundle of nests as a gift for the emperor. For centuries afterwards, people scaled cave walls to collect swiftlet nests, risking their lives. Today, the farms make things safer, but faith in the nest's health benefits remains unchanged. Eating them is believed to boost the immune system, improve virility, and make your skin smooth and bright. In appearance, the swiftlet is nothing too extravagant. Their plumage is gray and dull, but I could watch them fly for hours. They fly high. They spend most of their waking life in flight. All day, they eat and hunt in the air. Swiftlets are from the Apodidae bird family, meaning footless in Greek. From far, their tiny feet are barely visible. But from up close, we can see that they do have feet, or rather claws, that latch onto vertical surfaces. But their feet are too weak to push against gravity. They can't lift off from solid ground. So if they fall, they will likely die, unable to take off into the sky. In other words, for the swiftlet to stop flying means death. I wonder if my dad is obsessed with these birds because he too feels that to stop moving is to give in to death. After a lifetime of telling my sisters and I to work hard and never be satisfied, he doesn't seem to know how to stop. We return home to Canada again to give the Swiftlets more time. Life in Canada is quieter than life in Malaysia, away from the cries of the swiftlets. I think even my dad is relieved to be away from the noise. Growing up, I was daddy's little girl. After my two older sisters were born, my parents had tried for a boy. But still a girl. <laughs> but it was another girl. Just Emily. It was me. It's okay. Who cares? <laughs> They taught us to speak Mandarin and raised us with the lessons of their cultures. They taught us to respect our elders, to do well in school, to be non-disruptive, part of the herd. But I stood out anyway with my school lunches of chopsticks and shredded pork, which kids told me looked like I was eating carpet. Other times, my parents gave up their traditions to help us fit in. The Buddhist rituals my dad had grown up with were traded in for Christmas. But it all felt like a bit of a performance, without much meaning attached. When we take away the swiftlets' nests, they just spit out a new one. But my parents have a more complicated relationship with home. As we sit at the kitchen table together, my dad's cuckoo clock sings out in the silence of the house. Do you know what a cuckoo is, he asks me. It has a beautiful song. Which means if you left home for a long time, and your heart yearns for home, 
It's he is so sad he cannot go home. You find yourself listening to the cuckoo's cry among the trees. Singing, go back, go back, go back. We return to Malaysia once again. It's autumn of 2014, almost three years since we switched on the recorded sounds to draw the swiftlets in. There are still no signs of birds, though I find a half-finished nest on one of the speakers. It is humid within these walls. The opening in the roof casts light into the space. There are birds out there. Drawn close by the sound, their shadows occasionally dance within the grid of light. I close my eyes, almost as a way to invite them in. I direct my face towards the light. If I were a swiftlet, would this be where I'd want to settle down? These visits to Malaysia feel more and more like a recurring dream, and I find myself becoming even more obsessed over these birds than my father. I wake up to the sound of birds. Everything I see begins to remind me of birds. At a fun fair, we fly on a spinning swing ride, like birds on the wind. What look like empty bird cages hang from the Ferris wheel. I ask my uncle how long he thinks it will take for the birds to come. 早期我跟你讲，其实说你爸爸有时投资啊，一投资的时候啊。He says that my dad has a knack for investing in something, and the moment he invests, the market drops. 五千五千八，他们都卖到，现在跑了一千多块，我都不要卖。When my dad started his dream. The prices were high, almost six thousand dollars a kilo. Now they've dropped to a thousand. What can you do? <laughs> I ask my dad what he'll do if, after ten years, there are still no birds. Why、well, it takes time? Okay, takes time. He says lots of swiftlets will want to come. And that we have to pray every day that they come quickly. In the meantime, he'll keep waiting. Time passes. My parents continue their yearly trips to Malaysia. In 2017, my grandfather dies. My family in Malaysia texts me a video of them all chanting around his deathbed. The years press on. My dad turns 70, 71, 72. His hair turns white. I get married. My uncle dies. My dad has a stroke. A numbness lives in parts of his body now. This year marks nine years since my father's dream for a birdhouse began, and I am once again sitting at the kitchen table with him. The chair he is sitting in is squeaking. As we switch places, he remarks that chairs grow old, just like people grow old. I ask him for news of the swiftlets, and he evades my questions. Anyway, from what I gather, there are a few nests, but not enough to sell. I wonder if the failure of his plan bothers him. 
he sounds resigned, not just about the birds, but about life in general. And in the coming year, I don't know whether I'm still alive. <laughs> anyway. I ask my dad if he still has any dreams in life. Dreams in your life. Things to look forward to. I think I already did enough. I did enough. Okay. 我该做的事情我很多都做了。是这样子吗? Nothing you can do. You you cannot. It's already there. Oh, already fixed. 不能走掉的。he seems to be saying he's accepting his life as it is, accepting his fate. He asks me if I know the Chinese term, good death. He says it means that the best way to die is to go to sleep and never wake up. You didn't suffer anything. He says sometimes he thinks of dying that way. Better, much, much, much better. Yeah, a peaceful death. Yeah. But in the morning he wakes up and pinches himself, thinking, Hey, I'm still alive. It's life. He says he's happy to just take care of his plants. I'm happy. I, I don't want to go out to fight again no more. Okay. Just I I want my life easier than before. Just that's it. Finish. Enough is enough. He asks me why I'm crying. Huh? I've started to cry thinking of him, of his wish for a good death. I'm happy, okay? He hands me a tissue and tells me there's no need to cry, no need to worry about him. He says his whole life, raising my sisters and me, has made my mom and him happy. It's not waste. That his life is not a waste. What is there to regret? I have no regret at all. Meanwhile, back in Malaysia, the swiftlets keep flying as if they know only how to fly. And at the end of the day, they find their way home. They come inside and rest. Emily Gann. That doc was produced by Emily Gann and Mira Bertwintonic. It was based on Emily's documentary film, Cave Birds, about her father and the Swiftlets. She won the Emerging Filmmaker Award at the Hot Docs Canadian International Documentary Festival for that film back in 2019. All right, sit tight. We'll be back in a minute. What if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
Uh, my name is Adriel Smiley. I am 27 years old. Uh, I am a journalist slash broadcast person. I think that's me in a nutshell. Love my mother, love music, love basketball. Okay, listen to that last bit again. Love my mother, love music, love basketball, love my mother. Ouch. Because there is someone else in the picture. My name is Alistair Smiley. Um, Adriel Smiley is my son. Okay, let's not make too big of a deal about Adriel not including his dad in that list of loves. It's not because he doesn't love his dad. It's just not something he's super forthcoming about. Growing up, their relationship had some bumps. But last year, something happened that changed everything. George Floyd. His murder became a touchpoint for people around the world to grieve, rage, and demand change. And as Adriel and his father watched it all unfold, they found themselves connecting in ways they did not expect. Here's Adriel. Growing up, I would say that my dad was very disgruntled. Permanently disgruntled is how I would describe it. Um, you know, we got in, I would say, some arguments when we were younger, just about things that I didn't feel like were argument worthy. And he seemed to be very upset a lot of the time. Um, but he's always been someone with a big heart. He's a, a pastor. I think he started preaching when he was a teenager. So he's always had a big heart in that way. But personally, between us, it, it definitely was, I don't want to say beef all the way, but um, growing up, it definitely wasn't always crispy. I was raised in a different part of the world. I, I grew up in Jamaica. Um, we have different interaction with parents and, and kids. So I believe that has also um, shaped my life, the way that I see the world and how I think. There was one time, and this is a very, very vivid memory, when he was upset about our snow pants being wet. I think I was maybe seven or eight years old. And I thought that was weird because I thought that's what snow pants were for. But um, we definitely got super in trouble, super yelled at. So there was moments like that, that I, you know, I guess I didn't, I felt like the punishment didn't match the crime. And he was very upset about the car being wet. And in my head, I thought, well, you're the one who decided to have kids and you, you're the one who lives in Canada. So yeah, very, uh, very disgruntled. I don't recall that that situation. Uh, the only perspective that I that I have in regards to this, parents always see things in regards to their kids' um, tidiness and attire from a different perspective. The other way that I that I look at it, I think that sometimes my face is is misunderstood. Even if I'm thinking deeply, someone may look at me and say that you're very serious or you are you upset. But when my thought is going deeply, so um, I may not necessarily be seriously, um, if you want to say upset or disgruntled. The way that I was I, I was grown up. Um, it, it is more sheltered, uh, more restrictive. And my parents, they would be afraid of me um, with my brother and other siblings or friend going to the movie. Um, that is a perfect example of the difference where my kids with uh, maybe 10, um, 10 and 12, or even younger want to go to their um, the movie with their friends. And I would be very, more restrictive about things like that because of the way I was brought up on my worldview. For sure, being a pastor's son was a challenge. Like I wanted to play rep basketball and all the tournaments were on Saturdays and Sundays and, you know, trying to convince my parents to take me, you know, to a tournament to watch me play ball when they would be at church all day was just basically a non-starter. I remember going to school dances was like a big ask. So there were things that you know, at school or outside, it, they felt like they were normal, but uh, you knew they weren't accepted at home. I had been to Jamaica like 
a, a good amount of times, even as a young person. So I'd seen what the, the Christian community is like in Jamaica. So I kind of just assumed these things are not Christian enough. They're not good enough, not disciplined enough. Adriel, um, being the son of a preacher, I know that there is added responsibility because there is um, pressure on the community and both whether by words or by action from me or from um, his mom, that there is a certain either spoken or unspoken code that you should live up to. And I think that is a very difficult thing for any child to experience because there is added pressure. Most of it is unrealistic. So I think that um, also poses a lot of problem as well. For anyone who's a first son of a pastor, it's kind of expected that you're going to follow in those same footsteps. And when I was younger, I didn't have any problem in, you know, uh, volunteering at church or helping out or performing or things like that. But um, as I got older, I kind of felt more how expected it was of me to behave a certain way, do a certain thing. It was almost as if I was being told any decision that I wanted to make on my own was just invalid because I wasn't capable of making my own decisions. So that's how it felt, at least, just being a pastor's son. Just, it's expected of you to, you know, pick up the, the Bible next and be the next preacher. Um, you know, that's not really what I wanted to do. And I could definitely tell that there was some friction in that sense that um, I don't think he was happy with that. I've never sit him down and said to him that I wanted him to be a preacher. I always encourage him to be the best of who whoever he thinks he wants to become. Tension was definitely a huge part of our relationship, um, high school and onwards. I think that when he was going to university, or before he go, went to university, he took like a year off. And my advice is that even though each person has their own path, um, uh, you know, between myself and um, his mom, we were saying that, it's better for you to go to, to school now and finish up so you have more time because when you are going to university later, it's it's more difficult. So I think that maybe that's one of the year which I would say that I would maybe strongly disagree with him. And in terms of friends, what friends is he choosing? Is he focused? Is he being responsible? Um, how does he think of himself in terms of uh, the impact his example or his action will have on others? And most importantly, because Adriel is the oldest, what impact his action, behavior, and attitude will have on his brother in terms of setting good example? It's like he thought that I was lazy or that I wasn't working hard. And I was like, I'm actually working way harder than you even realize. I started interning at Rogers TV and like doing basically 18 hour days there um, from Monday to Friday. And even that wasn't like met with, why, why are you there so long? They're not paying you, why are you there so long? And then after that, I did some videography and I was going to events that are music related, whether it was like a rap battle or a live performance. Um, but to him, that was not quote-unquote work that was more like I was just hanging out and bringing my camera with me to me it was definitely work a lot of times I was shooting the whole video myself editing the whole video myself doing the whole setup myself and a lot of times even thinking of the questions that the interviewer would be asking the guests and I knew that it was valuable experience so to me I knew what it was leading towards and building connections and experience so I definitely looked at it as a stepping stone towards a career um, and it definitely didn't feel like he got that. And I guess that's the difference between him and my mom in that way. When I was trying to do things that I wanted to do, my mom was definitely like, how can I help you? What do you need from me? Do you need to borrow the car this day? Things like that. And my dad was more like, you should do it this way instead, or you should do this instead. I couldn't even share kind of my goals with her. We were able to have conversations like that with my dad. Sometimes I could tell that he wanted to talk about that kind of stuff. And, you know, that it didn't it didn't feel authentic to me. Um, I was interested in, I guess, hearing about 
me being inadequate in his eyes. He hadn't earned the right to those conversations with me, at least. So my mom, I felt like she had, but uh, my dad, no. But in 2020, something changed. In Minneapolis, a video of police brutality has shocked the city. George Floyd died after an officer pinned him to the ground. Floyd was in The police chief in Minneapolis has fired four officers after cell phone video emerged showing one of them kneeling on the neck of an unarmed black man who later died in hospital. The day that George Floyd was murdered, I saw um, like a tweet on Twitter kind of talking about it. I didn't watch the video. I didn't really pay it any mind. And my dad brought me brought me the video to me was talking about it and he said he saw it on cnn and so i was thinking okay this what well, this is what everyone's talking about on instagram it's made it to cnn now you know by tomorrow it will be gone and that's maybe because of how i look at a lot of these things in terms of that i have become a little bit desensitized to it so i didn't actually probably see the video of george floyd's murder maybe till a, a maybe five, six days, maybe a week after it had happened. But the fact that my dad was still talking about it and just how emotional he was made me wanted to watch the video. I was very teary when I was talking to him. Even now, talking about the same incident, it's very emotional for me. Because what goes through my mind is the fact that there is nothing that you can tell a person because of the incident which took place in open field among everyone and the world was watching that I can't tell my son to behave good to make a difference. No matter how much value, uh, how much ethics that I will teach him or doesn't matter how successful he is, no matter how uh, law abiding he is. Um, this world is 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 unfair and, and cruel. So I felt helpless. I felt that my hands are tied. All what I was trying to when he was younger was saying, going to school, be nice to the police, listen, make sure you're you're hanging out with the right the right friends and you're not doing anything illegal. Those things just really fall apart. And uh, just the foundation of which my own dad will tell me, you know, the kind of company I used to, to keep and how that will help me to be safe. Everything uh, fell apart, especially in a place like North America, where you think that it's, it's a more free and moral and just society where laws are important. So I, I felt hurt. I felt wounded. And I wanted to connect with Adriel so that I can under, understand his perspective and how he was seeing the incident, how he was doing it, um, how he was responding to it. He really felt hurt about George Floyd being a father and his his uh, kids having to grow up without a father. And so when he expressed that to me, that was something that really touched me. And for me, I was just really, um, really, really angry. You know, just, just the audacity of law enforcement you know, the fact that there was no fear of repercussions. It's like the kid who does something bad, knowing his parents are not going to get him in trouble. So I'd say I was definitely very angry um, and he was more hurt. I was in disbelief um, just how affected he was. And it really, really affected him as if George Floyd was someone that he knew. You know that look when you see someone who's been kind of going through it all day and they just look, they've had a, a tough emotional day and they're tired emotionally. That was the look that I saw in his face. Seeing the state that he was in, it made me want to talk to him more. And it, it did make it easier to talk to him because I hadn't had that same reaction at all. So it was almost as if he was reacting for the both of us. The first way that I was hurting, it was my own helplessness that I can't do anything to help my son if something like that would have happened or how easily my child could be misunderstood because of the color of his skin. And to me, I, I, I felt, how do we change this perception? What can I do? 
Because growing up as a young man, um, which I, as I say, I spend most of my time in the, in the Caribbean, Jamaica. And growing up, I have never had a personal bad experience with a police officer to merit me thinking of police officer negative. But the story that I am reading, what I was seeing, make me to think differently. So I think for the first time, I begin to realize how um, difficult it was for me to, to, to give advice to my son in terms of what can I say to them for them to feel protected and to feel safe. I just didn't want to look at it. The, the video actually took me a few tries of watching it before I could watch it all the way through. And it's just, it's just a hard, hard thing to watch. And dwelling on those emotions um, is a pretty scary feeling. So I just really wanted to ignore it because how it made me feel is not something that I wanted to feel. And I understand that's a kind of a luxury to even, you know, use that sentence. But seeing seeing what it did to my dad i was basically trying to avoid that and so i was really ignoring it and suppressing those feelings the video is something that everyone kind of watches on their own time but the riots we actually watched together and there was a lot of nights where where we were watching that in silence for a good few minutes the amount of fear or anger or just discontent that people had, you kind of saw that live out in the riots. But at the same time, you know, you, you're seeing the cops at the riots. So it's present in your mind of what could happen. And we saw a lot of moments of what did happen. Watching those things on TV together is what ended up bringing us together in the end. Just the act of sitting and watching it together because it's hard to explain, but it is some kind of a cathartic experience. We're watching people on TV trying to find a way to do something with the similar feelings that we have. My dad was definitely saying that these people should be less violent, less confrontational. Some of them should go home. I was saying that, yes, what they're doing is dangerous, but what do you want them to do? At this at this point, you definitely, I can understand someone feeling that nothing works. So, you know, I I don't know what I what I feel comfortable asking these people to do in a time like this. And we agreed that those are tough emotions to deal with. Because of the George Floyd incident, we begin to have a lot of conversation, and we were conversing. And he was sending me clips, uh, a video that you have seen of how, you know, um, black men were treated poorly. And I couldn't watch them because to me, it's really tear my heart apart because some of them were very ugly or even lead to death. Or if I send a clip that I've seen to him, he will say, Dad, I, I've seen that before. And I thought, wow, I mean, how have you seen that before? And you're so comfortable. Uh, or you are not, you know, literally screaming. What I was learning about Adriel during that time is, uh, number one, that he is braver than I think. He's comfortable talking about these things and he can deal with it even better than I, than I am in terms of um, just being exposed to some of these things. His understanding of what I understand, I think, grew. And we talked a lot about Black history, specifically um, civil rights movement, um, slavery, um, and even things that I've dealt with in my own life that I maybe had not told him in terms of dealing with race. In grade eight, my uh, teacher gave me a detention on my birthday. And one of the other students yells out, He's only in here because he's black. And it was like that record scratch that happens when, uh, you know, in a movie or something. And it was odd that she didn't have a response to that, but she kind of fumbled over her words and was like, uh, 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 uh. 
And then another, another student chimed in and then she said, no, I'm not racist. I definitely did not tell my dad about that at the time, which I guess shows how different I was thinking at that age. He was kind of shocked as I think that a lot of times with black people, with other black people, we don't always talk about our even microaggressions of racism. So I could tell it was eye-opening for him and it was kind of eye-opening for me just to revisit that because I hadn't thought about that in a very long time. It felt good um, to let him know about that story and sharing that with him because I feel like I wanted him to know that I was aware of what was going on and that I had been through similar things um, myself. Again, like knowing my dad my whole life, maybe less than five times I'd mentioned something to him like that where I felt like someone was being racist to me. And especially when you're younger and those things happen to you, um, it's very easy for you to get gaslit on how real those things are. What I guess I, I learned about him is him thinking about himself in that way as he's a father, George Floyd is a father. Like, I just wasn't thinking of that intersectional layer that he would relate to George on. So it was a lot. I was like really sad. I was really, really sad. My parents mean a lot to me. They're really important. And, you know, thinking about losing any of them is tough, but to lose a parent that way, like that has to be a different level of anger, sadness, you know, that I can't even describe. I felt like I related to the to the kids for sure because like just the simple fact of losing a father or parent is absolutely tough. But I think about how is that kid gonna ever call the cops for anything? You know, if some if any anything that happens, anything, how is that kid gonna call the cops? Going forward, it's like how how are they gonna trust law enforcement at all? Like that just seems like just not possible for that for that person. Without my dad kind of mentioning it like that, I definitely wouldn't have thought so much about um, George Floyd being a father. When these things happen, we often think about the Black community as a whole and what it means to all of us who are not even living in that state, don't even know George Floyd. And we think about those things and the, the fight as a whole, but we don't have to think about that every day. Um, his kids do, his family does, and... That's just something that is never going to go away. So, Before George Floyd, my relationship with Adriel, I think it was very basic, busy. Um, we were in our own zone. But after the George Floyd incident, I think we have um, lots of time to come together and, and speak. And I, I think... Most importantly, one of the lessons that I learned from this, how precious it is to really um, make the time to value those who are in your in your life, especially your family, because incident like this revealed to you um, the depravity of how you know the human heart can can manifest itself and steal someone from your family or steal someone that you love. So what it taught me is to appreciate um, Adriel and, and, and to even love him more. Whenever I connect with Adriel, I talk to my, my other son on the line. When I'm saying bye, I always let them know that I love you. I always say I love you. Um, and sometimes I will send a voice note, um, an empowering voice note to them and let them know that I'm speaking life over them. I'm speaking favor. I'm speaking blessing and I'm speaking courage and that, you know, I know that I see greatness in them and that they're going to make a difference. They're going to add value to society and they can be a world changer because they have the, the power and the ability to do that. From Angel was very young, I was the one who introduced him to um, new, reading the newspaper. I teach him how to read um, the sports page. So I would be driving in the car in the morning and he would be looking at the 
sports page talking about the Maple Leafs or um, different kind of sports like basketball and things like that. And recently I was saying to him, it's, it's really ironic that I have introduced you to newspaper and all this reading and you choose media and journalism uh, as a field that you want to work in. And that's the seed that was planted in your, in, in your mind from a young age, because it was such a treat for me, especially when um, taking Adriel and his other brother to school and he's reading the, the sports page and he's telling me things that are happening. And that was amazing. I feel good that Adriel is doing what he's, what he's doing and I am very proud of him, and uh, I, I always tell him that I believe in him. I don't know the relationship George Floyd had with his kids, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there's things that he wished he could have done better, and now he's not here to do them. And, think, and I really thought about that more with my dad, and our relationship has changed in that sense, where before when I would get frustrated with him or get angry with him, I feel very slow to anger or very slow to frustration now just because, um, you know, I know how important that relationship is to him. So I feel like we're both, you know, just not the same after everything that happened. I see our relationship in a good place now. I feel like we have just an understanding of each other in terms of, you know, what it is that we want, what it is that we know, who, who it is that we are. We, we understand that there's kind of no time for tension anymore because we both see ourselves in George Floyd. Just even that realization, in a sense, is helping us be closer. Adriel Smiley, and his dad, Alistair. That doc was produced by Sherry Okeke with Adriel. It was edited and mixed by Allison Cook with backup from Tanera McLean. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Sherry Okeke, Allison Cook, Andrew Friesen, Kent Hoffman, and me. Althea Manassen is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca podcasts.